Hey, one and all, and welcome to another episode of the What the Niche podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Morris. Again, I'd like to thank everyone for your support, and I hope all of you continue to enjoy the material I'm producing. Please continue to share with your friends and family because I cannot reach a broader audience without your help. And thanks again. In this episode, my guest and I will peer into the deep recesses of the horror genre, which is why I chose to give you that unnerving intro to kick off the episode. Now, this topic is one that has long been near and dear to my heart. For those who don't know me, I've chosen to devote entire portions of my body to act as homage for my love of the various aspects of all things that go bump in the night. I remember not long after my first horror film-themed tattoo was completed, I had someone ask me why I decided to put something so scary and off-putting on my body. (laughs) I told them it represented family for me. (laughs) And after I stared into their puzzled face, I began to elaborate a little further. I asked them... Can you think back to a simpler time when all you had to think about was getting home when the streetlights came on? Think back to the best times of your life. For me, some of the best times occurred during my youth. When every Friday my family ventured out to the Red Giraffe or Roadrunner video store, Blockbuster was for the bougie people. My parents and siblings would rummage through the countless titles which lined the walls of those sanctuaries of entertainment. And every week, my family and I would burrow deeper and deeper into the world of film. Somehow, most weeks, the perusing led to interest in one random horror flick or another. And of course, no adventure into cinematic bliss would be complete without the proper culinary accompaniment which usually included pizza, cheeseburgers, or one of the other American staples. Once the food was acquired, it was time for the weekly journey into the oblivion of fear. Our humble meals in our laps, the lights turned down, bodies snuggled up on a couch, pets strewn around the room as the hypnotic illumination of the purveyor of terror cast a spell on everyone within its reach. For those few hours every week, it didn't matter if bills were overdue, the fridge was a little emptier than we would have liked it, the living room was a little too chilly because the heat was on the fritz, or if my brother's nasty ass toes were touching my leg. All that mattered was we were together, watching every bimbo do something we knew she shouldn't, basking in the glory of every maniac hacking off a limb, and never daring to look away even though we knew a great scare was coming soon. Horror has always been one of the ways I've found to escape the tribulations of the daily grind, and for me it will always leave me reminiscing about those beautiful nights I was lucky enough to be under the same roof with my family, unified by our fear. Now this brings me to my guest for this episode, and I must start by saying it was an absolute pleasure for me to sit down with a like-minded individual who shares much of the same passion for the horror genre as myself. And to help me introduce this special guest, I will share this clip from Confessions of Fred Krueger, which was directed by my guest 
and Fred Krueger in this scene is played by the amazing Kevin Roach. He stopped fighting and screaming and he fell to the ground. I looked down at him and I saw the white flesh of his exposed belly. The sounds of the other four boys running made me catch a glimpse of them running away in that beautiful, perfect fear. It inspired and compelled me. I hated them. I wanted to hurt them all. But I only had one. So I pulled out Underwood's straight razor. The razor that he used on me, the same razor that I took from his drawer the night I set his house aflame. And I cut four little cuts in the boy's exposed belly. Four little cuts for the four little piggies that got away. Nathan Thomas Milner is obviously a director. He's an artist, writer, father, husband, and overall, totally rad dude. I met Nathan at a horror convention and bought some of his artwork, which is brilliant, and I gotta give him a little shout out. He's gonna be showcased on the cover for the July issue of Fangoria, and that's one of his lifelong dreams, so I had to give him a big shout out. Go check out that magazine and get it. After I bought some of his pieces at the convention, I began to follow him on Facebook, and I realized I agreed with him on many of his outlooks in regards to the genre. When this podcast finally crawled into existence from the primordial ooze of my mind, I knew I had to have him on as a guest. I'm not only pleased with how great a conversation we had, but I'm also pleased I think I can say that I truly made a friend in the process. So without any further teasing, I dare you to trek through this conversation with us. Hello, I'm Nathan Thomas Milner, um, horror artist, um, well, not just horror artist, artist, uh, writer, filmmaker, husband, father. Beautiful, man. Um, I have uh, met you at several of the cons. I know that you've probably met thousands of people and things of that nature. And uh, uh, we befriended each other on Facebook. And uh, I think that we got into an exchange of talking about horror movies, oddly enough. Uh, I was asking for some some uh, suggestions, and you came with the deep dive. <laughs> the list that you came in with was exactly what I was wanting because you know as well as anybody else that trying to find good horror uh, is difficult, but probably part of what makes you enjoy the genre uh, more than anything else because those gems are so hard to find. And I was really appreciative that you come in with uh, some of these flicks that I hadn't heard of and still looking forward to getting into those. Now that I've started this podcast, my free time is a little bit more limited. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I will. I have that list saved. Um, the first question that I, I found to like kind of kick these things off to really just kind of get this ball rolling, uh, especially with horror, um, what are some things that you've encountered? I know that again, we, I just mentioned you've been at a lot of cons and things of that nature. What are some of the things that people assume uh, about you being someone who is a, a horror artist and a, a filmmaker and things in, into all things horror, you do another horror podcast. What are things they assume about you because you're into that stuff? 
Um, usually the, the first thing is that you're sick minded or you're dangerous or you're, you're twisted or you worship Satan or <laughs> you're, you're dangerous or, um, um, or why would you do that? I got that a lot in the art field. Like, why would you waste your talent on that? You know, why would you, you know, cause when I went to college and studied art, you know, I was drawing models and, you know, just traditional art. And then I would show what I was into, which at the time was comics. I started out in comic books and I'm not talking to horror comics. I'm talking, you know, superheroes and all that stuff. And um, I would get that attitude of why are you wasting your time with this? Like there was no respect for commercial art or comic books or horror or genre stuff. Um, so, but yeah, the misconceptions really is are that that the horror fans are probably as dark and dangerous or messed up as the as the material, which I find is actually the opposite. I think we're much more healthy and more in tune with it because it's a cathartic thing and it's it's about facing your fears and it's about dealing with these things and, and we all have those dark sides, but we don't repress it. We release it through the, what we're watching or what we're seeing or what we're writing or drawing, uh, we get it out of us. I think it's people who, who don't expose themselves because if you go back in time, I mean, death and violence was a part of human life. I mean, used, people used to bury their own dead and hunt for food and, you know, slaughtered their own meat and all this stuff. And we don't, but this is part of human nature. It's part of our instincts. And, uh, so I think that's why people watch football. That's why people watch wrestling or boxing or MMA or it's a, it's a release um, of tension and, and, and those things. So we don't watch it to emulate it or worship it. We watch it to deal with the things that go bump in the night and the scary things uh, out there that, so I think that's, and, and, and another thing is uh, a lot of horror fans are some of the nicest people. Um, um, I don't look like a horror guy. I don't have any tattoos. <laughs> I don't have, like, everybody thinks you have tattoos. You have piercings. You have you wear black all day long. You know what shade? What shade of black do you you choose in the morning? And <laughs> yeah. um, what a poor excuse for a horror person are you? I mean, just no, you're making all horror. Fan. I don't What's, look anything. I look like a yuppie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, dude. But, I have a yuppie house. My people would be like, your house looks like HGTV. And I'm like, that's fine. And then they would I mean, go to my office and it's all horror things from floor to ceiling. And they're like, where did Martha Stewart die? Right over there, actually. I sacrificed her on that pentagram. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's how it is. Like it, um, I mean, there are some people who live it. You know, they live that lifestyle. They, they're, hundred, they're horror 24-7. And, um, but at the same time, those people are no different than the people who look like us, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, uh, we all love the same thing and we, we can all come together, especially at the conventions. That's one of the coolest things at the conventions is you're home. You're with people who get it and don't judge you for it because you all love the same things. And it's just a enthusiasm, the same way people are enthused about superheroes or, or Star Trek or Star Wars or whatever it is. You have this collective and, and horror fans are loyal to mm. the art that they're into. They know, they know who the extras are. They know who the makeup artists are. They know the cinematographers and the writers where you don't find that a lot in other film fan fandom, unless you're a fa film fanatic, you know, if you're, which I am, I love all film. I love everything. Uh, but to be a horror fan is a very, just the you know, redheaded stepchild of the, of film. Like it's the one that 
a lot of film people in the industry will say, ah, I didn't do, no, it's not horror. It's a, it's a thriller. It's uh, you know, they, they try to <laughs> separate it because of the, the stigma of, of horror that it's, it's less than it's, it's, it's not good art. It's, it's, it's cheap garbage art. It's pulp fiction, I guess, or something, you know, there's something to be thrown away. Yeah. I, you ran into a little bit of that with Scorsese when Scorsese made Shutter Island which you, you could have easily put it into the horror category, I guess, on the outskirts of that, maybe there on the uh, on the uh, the fringe. But uh, he was very adamant in, in doing that very thing that you discussed, like, no, that's strictly a th- thriller, and like, you know, which was fun. I mean, it was very similar to uh, a film that John mm-hmm. Carpenter had done called The Ward at the same time. Uh, and I remember talking to John Carpenter about that film when he came uh, and talked about who – influence too and he had said that they were both in kind of post-production at the same time so he's like i don't know that either of us really probably had a direct influence on the other but he did say he knew martin scorsese which, which was cool i was like well that's neat um yeah but yeah it, it is weird that there is this stigma associated with it especially now when you've had uh so many so many great successes with it especially like with it being such a box office baby and uh, you know, you've had the paranormal activity or par- yeah, paranormal activity series that went on to do so well. And it's, it's so strange that the, these- the walking dead was the highest rated television show on TV. I mean, it's, it's, every- ten it's, seasons. Every- it's everywhere. Like, yeah. I don't understand why it would, cause now you've got, you know, castle rock and you've got, you had true blood yet. It's horror has been dominating for a long time, but it still lacks respect for some reason. And now, I mean, luckily we're getting a lot of, you know, one of the things that was uh, around in the 70s and, and maybe in the early 80s was that we had some of our best filmmakers making horror films where you had, you know, William Freakin, who just won an Oscar, make The Exorcist. And you had Stanley Kubrick making The, the Shining and De Palma making Carrie and Spielberg making Jaws. And, um, you know, you had some of the best filmmakers around making horror films and it wasn't a, a, a problem, but now we're getting that where we have guys like Jordan Peele and Ari Aster and Robert Eggers, um, who are making films like the witch and hereditary and midsummer. Lighthouse. I just watched the yeah. lighthouse last week. Yeah. yeah and they're, they're great films and, and like, they're not just good horror films. They're great films. Mm. And, um, so, you know, I think, I think it's coming around, but I think it'll always be a horror because there's still a lot of people who like one thing other horror fans don't understand or they don't think about is that most people are afraid of these films. They don't like these films. They don't, they don't, they're terrified of them films. So they don't watch them as much as we do. So it just takes a a certain type of person um, who isn't bothered by, isn't watching it recreationally. Like, Hey, it's October. Let's go watch a Friday the 13th movie. It's, it's like, no, we're watching Friday the 13th every day of the week. I mean, it's just how <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're wired differently, but but it doesn't define this. I did, it's never defined me. Horror, as I like horror, I find, as far as a filmmaker, I'm drawn to it because I really love atmosphere. I love building. I love playing with the audience. I love um, suspense and um, tension. And uh, those are the things I really enjoy as a uh, bringing to the screen because uh, I made a Star Wars fan film for charity uh, a couple of years ago and I Star Wars is where it all started for me I, I was born in 76 so I grew up with them and um, 
and I enjoyed making Star Wars, but as I was making it, as I was in post, like, you know what? I really miss horror. <laughs> I really think that's where I I like to focus. And I'm not, it's not about blood and guts with me. I'm, I'm a psychological fan. I like psychological horror, like um, Maniac, stuff like that. Uh, you know, more of, I mean, because my favorite films are not even horror. Like Taxi Driver is my favorite film. So, but, but you talk about Scorsese. Scorsese said that he shot that movie like it was a horror film. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of horror elements to it. Um, no, I, I like a lot of crime films. I think it's kind of, I was a big Tarantino fan when he came around and I love Scorsese. I love the Coen brothers. Um, so that's kind of where I, I want to end up eventually, but all of that, all of their films, like you look at something like blood simple by the Coens or taxi driver or no country for old men. Those films have atmosphere. They have horror vibes. Um, this characters are, I mean, you know, Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men is a terrifying character. Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver is a terrifying character. So the, um, so to me, they kind of are married together. That's that's where I would like to move towards as a filmmaker because I feel it's still like one foot in horror. Um, and again, uh, horror fans are loyal. I've been treated very well by them. And it's kind of like, you know, know your audience kind of thing as well. So if people treat you right and they support you, you don't just abandon them, you know? Right. So, and I think you talked about it being a, a bit of catharsis with, with horror films and things of that nature. And you talk about the, um, the thing you can make the connection to the insular nature of people where we're in these, uh, these hyper isolated cities. Now we're kind of cut off from nature, if you will. And those mm-hmm. things that went bump in the night that we used to be scared of the very reason we're afraid of the dark, are things like uh, tigers and lions and monkeys that would rip your arms off and and snakes and poisonous spiders and all these things that we used to have to worry about when we were tribal people not so long ago. You know, human beings being around maybe 200,000 years, we're not so far removed from being in those tribes where just right outside of the fire were things that wanted to kill you. So there is a, there is a real call to wanting to be scared, I think, because we don't get it anymore. Everything is very easy. Uh, you can walk right out your door and go to the grocery store. You don't have to hunt for your food. Uh, so this, you know, this conversation could go into things like why are people depressed and so on and so forth. Well, there's a lot of things that we don't get to do anymore that we did before. Uh, now people don't have self worth because they don't know what they're supposed to do. So it goes into a whole other conversation. Yeah. And I think that that fear of the unknown and the fear of the things in the dark are the very things that, that scare us like nightmare on Elm street. You have the poster there behind you. I know Wes Craven had talked about what made that movie work for such a grand audience. Everybody dreams at some point. So the thought yeah. that there's something there waiting for you when you go to sleep at night was the ultimate fear, the universal fear. And I think the overall universe, uh, universality of horror in general is the fact that fear is something that is in all of us, whether we want to admit it or not. And some people are willing to go and take that, that thing that's going to make their heart beat a little bit faster in a theater, whereas some others are not willing to do it. And as you mentioned, I think that horror fans are some of the nicest people uh, that I've encountered uh, as a group, as a tribe, because that we do challenge ourselves pretty consistently. So it kind of takes that stuff away from us. We're not as stressed because we're letting that fear go, you know, five, six times a week. Yeah, we're we're chill, man. (laughs) And like I said, yeah, I mean, we we all like 
what you said, we don't think about the horrors of the world because we are so pampered now and sheltered from it. And we don't face that life or death situation every day that people did, you know, and just a hundred years ago, um, you know, if a virus breaks out, we kind of have confidence that we're going to beat it. But, you know, a hundred years ago, it was a death sentence for most people. And, yeah. you know, things like uh, the witch, I brought up the witch, you know, that film is based, I mean, really in, how those people at that time, I think it's the 1600s, witchcraft was a very real thing. The mm-hmm. devil was something that they really truly believed in and it affected, that's what that film is all based on, but we don't really think that way. I mean, some people still do, but not most, but to them, the devil was as real as the, as the sun and the grass and the, and the air. And um, going into the woods was a place you didn't go, especially if you're a child. Um, and that's, you know, they're stay out of the woods, stay out of the woods kind of thing. So, um, and like I said, because of the wildlife, because uh, bears and lions and things out there that, that will get you, uh, it will take you away. And um, so, yeah, I, I think it's there's something very primeval about the horror genre. Uh, and, and they also say that horror, like you talked about the release, is they said there's only two, like screaming and laughing does the same thing to us. Like there's something about, so comedy and horror, both of the most, I think that's why a lot of comedy are shorter films than other films because we can't take it. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the laughing and the screaming or the fear. Um, so a lot of horror movies are 90 minutes long because the, and that's when they work best because too much, you just exhausted mm-hmm. uh, because they do take a lot out of you. Uh, but it's, again, it's, it's kind of like going on a roller coaster ride or whatever. You're, you're just, you're elevate your adrenaline goes. You're if a, if a horror film's working, um, you know, I've sat in theaters and, and you could feel the energy in the room. Uh, I, I think that's what a lot of like Don Coscarelli made phantasm mm. because he started out making like coming of age movies. He made two coming of age kind of comedy movies, but there was one in his second movie. He had a, a, a scene where these kids went into a haunted house and there was a jump scare in there. And this guy came out and grabbed the kid. They screamed and he was at screenings and the kids, everybody jumped in the theater and got scared. And he, he liked the way that fell. He loved that. He was able to affect those people that way. And it, he could feel it in the room. And I've been there. I've been to my own film premieres and watching the audience and feeling their your energy and their and what they give off when they're afraid. Just like if you go to, you know, Waverly Hills, we're here from Louisville, you go to Waverly Hills and they're filling your head with all this stuff about ghosts and you go in there and you can feel everybody's tension and fear and it plays on you. Uh, because, and that's one thing about horror is it, it is a community thing. Going to the theater to see it with a crowd is unlike just watching it at home because you're feeding off of that audience, just like a comedian feeds off of the vibes of the audience or the energy from them. Um, so it's, it's to me, it's, it's definitely, I mean, all film really is, but horror especially because you do get that. You can feel everybody's tense when they get really quiet and you can mm. feel that they're all like, if you watch like paranormal activity where everybody's quiet and watching the screen, waiting for something because they know something's coming. I remember feeling just the stick in the air of everybody's quiet. A quiet place was that way too. Cause it was so quiet. Like the whole movie's quiet and I could feel everybody. Everybody was quiet. Everybody watching it was quiet because they were, they knew shit was about to happen. I thought, <laughs> I feel like that one was unique in, in the very fact that um, you connected with the characters, 
from the film and you understood the stakes. So like, I feel like people were even afraid to like eat their candy during that movie. They were like, shit, the rapper. Did you hear it? (laughs) Fuck. We're all dead. And I, you brought up paranormal activity, man. That was probably one of my greatest theater theater going experiences was because um, that film uh, was pushed by Steven Spielberg because he had seen it at one of the film festivals and wanted to bring it to a mass audience. Uh, Hollywood producers actually wanted to reshoot it with different characters and do all this crap. And he said, absolutely not. So what they started doing is they put out this page where cities could demand the film based upon the trailer. And I had seen the trailer like in the early, early gets because obviously I'm a horror, uh, horror fanatic and I'd seen this and I'd send it out to everybody I knew. Like I was like, look at this trailer. Holy crap. Go and request that this comes here. So it was like me and 50 of my friends when it finally came here uh, on like a Wednesday night, an early premiere. It was going to open wide on Friday and everybody that had requested it was on that Wednesday. So we all went and it's a theater full of people that have been dying to see this film. And like you said, man, everybody, you could feel the tension for everybody. We were all excited to see what that next scare was. And we knew, you know, that if you've seen the film, the little hum that comes between every little scare and it starts to build, which was phenomenal. Um, Mm. We all took that journey together. It was so communal. Like you felt it all together and the the scares were that much better because you would have a screamer three rows back and she'd scare the shit out of you as much as the movie would, you (laughs) know? And and it's just such a beautiful thing. And and I've had those encounters time and time again, get out, get out was phenomenal. We saw that opening night and that was unique for me as a white dude. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I I went opening night and I was probably one of four white dudes in the theater, but it was awesome because they were so excited that someone in their community, an African-American director like Jordan Peele had made something that they could connect to, which they don't get a lot in horror. It seems. That was what I, what I loved about us was I'm sitting there watching us and I'm in the first 10, 15 minutes. It's the part where they're just driving out to the beach house or whatever it was where they were staying and there, you know, the the song comes on and all that. There's and I'm like, I've never seen this. I've never seen a horror film where the protagonists are a black family, mm-hmm. and it's not about them being black. It's just that they're just these these. They happen to be the black. They're the family and they're black. And we just like you said, they never have gotten that. And that was so true. Like to us, it's like take it for granted because everybody's white in a damn movie. But to see them. Because you, because uh, a lot of like I always say, like a lot of times, black films are about the same thing. It's it was always about the inner city struggle, the boys in the hood movies, the menace of society. Why is it always about the crime and the jail and the thugs and the drugs? This was just a normal family, you know, on vacation, and it wasn't a movie that only black audiences were going. Everyone was going to see this movie. Everyone was excited about it because of how good Get Out was and how effective and how good jo- Jordan Peele is at what he does. Um, and yeah, like I, the other, another film you mentioned, uh, going to the theater, I remember seeing scream opening night oh. and how, how that audience was packed and you laughed, you screamed, you got tense. I mean, it had, that was a great theater experience for me is one, one I remember. And these are movies that people trash all the time in our community, paranormal activity and scream and, but I watched them in theaters and they were some of the most effective horror films period that I've ever seen. Um, I think that there's this, um, 
And, and I'm sure you see it a lot. And this also happens in, you know, other, other groups and other niches as well. Um, but horror fans often tend like, especially the ones that are like deep in it as you and I are, uh, and other people that you meet at these cons, I think it's, it's a reluctance to enjoy the things in the mainstream because they yeah. don't want everybody to feel a part of their thing. I think, uh, I, I think can't you're, you're, you're definitely right. Because when I got into horror, it was at a time when I was, I was 11 years old. I was a new kid in school. I was being bullied. I was quiet. I was sensitive, you know? And when you're an outsider, you have, you do look for those things. It could be a band, you know, you get into punk rock, get into heavy metal. For me, it was, it was heavy metal. It was real big in the mid eighties, late eighties and horror. And so I got into that and then you do, you get that where this is mine. This is, this is my thing. Like, this is my music. This is my movie. Like those popular kids, they're not watching reanimator. I'm watching reanimator. And now they're all watching reanimator and screw them. You know, they can't have this. This is mine. And you're seeing that in everything now. Cause you know, when I was reading comic books in the eighties, like everybody, not nobody's reading comics now, but everybody's watching the Marvel movies and their biggest thing in the world. So but at the same time, I get, I get why fans want it to stay mine. It's like the same way when you get a band who, hey, I saw them in that bar down the street 20 years ago, and I was one of their first fans. Now they're, they're, they're sold out, and they suck. And it's like, no, they're still great. They're still cool. I mean, but you decided that they're not cool enough because other people like it now. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's just – I think it comes in everything, not just horror, but – um, I just, I don't, I don't see why I have to not like something because it did catch on or because it did get successful or because they did improve to where they now are mainstream and people like them everywhere. It's not always that they just been commercialized. It's just that they got better at their job and it caught on. Yeah. And, uh, they started working with better producers or better, you know, bigger scripts or bigger, you know, budgets. Um, and I think there's, there is a rejection just in the, even in the art community. I'm an artist and you know, if you make money at art, you're, you're, you're just shit. You're like, that's not what, you know, real art business and art and money don't mix. It's like, well, I mean, if someone wants to pay me to do what I'd love to do, I'm not going to argue with them, but there is that whole sellout thing that people want to throw around and to make themselves, I don't know, above it or feel cool or special. And I just don't buy it. I think I, if, as long as you're, you've got integrity and you don't, you know, just make something for, for the paycheck. Yeah. Um, you're not selling out. You just, you're just, you're just successful at what you do and you, and you appeal to more people. Yeah. I was in a, a heavy metal band for years and, uh, one of my guitar players said, you know, he had talked about uh, what he was like, I would play guitar tomorrow for Britney Spears if she was going to pay me. He, and I was like, are you serious? I was like, you're better than that. And he's like, imagine I'm playing for stadiums filled with people. She's going to pay me really well. And I'm still playing guitar. Is that really selling out? He's like, I'm, you know, I might not be playing the music that I absolutely adore that I wrote. He's like, but I'm still playing guitar and I'm still playing in front of people, which I enjoy doing. He's like, so why, why do you see it that way? And I was like, damn, bro. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, there's a, there's a show with the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with little Dickie. Um, he has a show on FX right now called Dave and the uh, season finale just came on 
this week, and it, it discussed that very thing right. about being a sellout because uh, he's talking about it's basically like a demonstration of his life. But spoiler, not really a spoiler. In the episode, he's talking about selling out, and he's looking to those around him. He's like, they won't sign me because I made this ridiculous song in the episode. It's absurd. And they're like, we can't put this on an album. Are you out of your mind? He's like, that's why I don't want a record label because this is selling out. You won't let me do what I want to do. And then his friends are kind of like, hey, man, maybe they're right because this sounds kind of crazy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and So he's like, he realizes that, you know, sometimes you got to be outside of yourself. And as an artist, sometimes people get in this mindset that they're sacrificing all of their creativity. If someone within their circles, like, Hey man, are you sure that that's like the thing you want to do with what you're doing? Doesn't mean that they're bashing on you or hating on your abilities or any of that. Sometimes you have to be a little bit outside yourself and accept that. And yeah. I know as a, as a, uh, as a vocalist, sometimes it'd be hard for me to not, do exactly what I had written when I brought it to band practice. And the other guys go, what are you saying there? That, <laughs> that sounds dumb as hell. You're like, Oh, well maybe it does. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you just have to be open to the process. And I don't think it's about selling out or, you know, sacrificing your artistic integrity is any of it comes with a level of sensibility, just like anything. So yeah, that's, that's a cool point, man. So I know that you've done quite a bit of stuff and, and you've talked about uh, you've made films and you've done, uh, you're an artist outside of the horror realm and of things of that nature. If you were to say there was one piece style of resistance of the things that you've done, what is probably what you feel to be your greatest achievement at this point? I don't know. I mean, there's greatest achievements. I mean, I don't know how you rate that. I mean, I've made, you know, my, my Freddie fan film was almost at a million views on YouTube. So I'm pretty proud of that one. But again, it's, it's just my tribute to Wes. So I don't hold it as pure, you know, pride because it's not, it's not something I created. Uh, I mean, it is, but it isn't. Um, but I think it's more just, I, I've, I've gotten to do everything I wanted to do. And I, and so I don't, I don't really put, I mean, the first, I'm always like a first, all right, the first magazine cover I did, the first Blu-ray cover I did, the first movie poster I did, the first film I made, whatever it is, those are special. And, uh, but to me, it all goes back to just that first step that you do. Uh, I'm proud of that. I, cause a lot of people talk and dream, you know, and it's all about that first step when I'm going to take this step, I'm going to do this. No, like two people may care, no one may care, or two million people may care, but I'm not going to stop. And I've, I've warned in a lot of people who've stopped over the years because the audience or the success wasn't there. Um, but it, it's not a lie that persistence, you know, counts. And so, you know, whether it's, you know, when Playboy calls you and asks you for do, to do this or, you know, uh, and you get to do uh, something for Tarantino at the New York. And I've done stuff like that where I've got to work on things uh, with heroes. Like right now I'm working on something that's associated with Patton Oswalt. And he's like one of my favorite comedians. And you, you, you made me, I was just thinking about him because of the whole sellout because he did a bit about doing a show in Vegas, I think it was. And they paid him more money he'd ever been paid for a stand-up appearance ever 
and he's looking at it and he goes out on stage and he didn't even get to do his set because everybody just wanted him to do like rat tatouille stuff <laughs> and king of queens lines yeah and he's like up there and they're like yeah they're going crazy they're all drunk and tell him to do his one-liners from all these things they knew him from and he felt like oh man i'm sold out or i'm just down and then he goes i'm looking at that check and i'm going this this will pay for one year of my daughter's college you know and it, it, i just had to do that for an hour mm. and um so i just i don't want to put one thing out there because it's just they've all been a blessing they're all opportunities that I dreamed about as a kid. And like, when I look at my checklist, almost everything's been checked. I've, I've worked on toys. I've worked on books and magazines and films and posters and DVDs and, um, comics. Um, yeah. And I just, I just like creating, I just like having something to do every day. Uh, so is, is that is that what continues to drive you? I mean, if you if you, you know, you're talking from an aspect of where you appreciate everything, and at this point you feel as though you've gotten to do pretty much everything that you wanted to, what continues to push you? Is it just that drive to create? I have really started to challenge myself on things that I had always wanted to do but hadn't. I think it's important. That's I mean, I'm not just a drawing or writing or, or whatever. I'm I'm making film, and film has been a big driving force now because film is a, is a medium that you'll never master and you'll never really get a grab because there's always more to learn. There's so many aspects to it as a, as a film director, there's so many things like one of my favorite quotes of recent years was uh, Greta Gerwig when she was, um, you know, up for an Oscar for um, Lady Bird. And she was talking about how, what she loves about directing film is that you'll, again, you'll never master it. There's always a challenge. It's always something to learn. And it is every film you get, it's a whole new challenge. How do I adapt this to get it as what's the best? I mean, and you break it down. It's so, it's like, how do I make this scene the best I can? How can I, what can I take out? What can I add? What, how can I shoot this? What kind of, you know, what's it's you just break it down so much that there's never the challenge is there every day with film. And then with uh, art, you know, I was never much of a painter. So I've started to paint now more often, or I'll try a medium that I haven't, or I, I wanted to sculpt. I'd never sculpted. So last year I started sculpting, um, doing me uh, makeup effects and like work on this or building sets for the films and things that, that, cause in film, there's so many different arts. There's so many things you can do. Uh, sound design, music, you know, I, I want to try it all because I want to, the more I know, the better I'm able to communicate with the people who I've put in that position. I, if, if I know music better, I can communicate with my composer better. If I do makeup or sculpt, I can talk to my makeup artist better. If I know the camera and lenses and photography better, I can talk to my cinematographer more clear because it's all about being clear and precise, tell them exactly what I want. and and you have to communicate with them learn go take acting classes so i could talk to my actors and, and, and understand where they're coming from and understand what their process is respecting everybody's job on that set so that you know everybody's job and you can communicate with them and you know you're not having miscommunications and you know it things move quicker and thing and, and they feel better because you respect what they do and that's really what it is like in any team effort respecting each other and um, and get letting them have a part of it, uh, letting them bring their talents because everybody has their talent. Respecting that enough to know I'm not 
I, I know your job, but you focused on this. This is what you do. Same way with art. Like if someone contacts me wanting something that I'm not very good at, I say, look, I could do it, but why don't you talk to Erica over here, who is a friend of mine, who is a master at that, who's great at that, because I want you to have the best job. Uh, but if you want me, I'll do it. But I'm telling you right now, we all have our, our strengths and we all have our weaknesses. And at the same time, the challenge, the motivation is to attack my, my weaknesses. All right, what am I not good at? Okay, well, I'm going to change that. I, I, my, my biggest hero growing up was Michael Jordan, and that's how Michael Jordan approached things. Why did I not win this season? Oh, well, the Knicks are beating me around. They're just beating me up. The Pistons are beating me up. I'm going to go hit the gym. I'm going to get stronger. I'm going to get bigger. Oh, well, uh, I'm known as an offensive guy, but I'm going to focus on defense over the you know, over the, the, the time off, and I'm going to be, come back, and I'm going to be defensive champion of the, of the year. And he did. You know, he, he, he would ta- attack his weaknesses and decide no weaknesses, and I'm going to be good at everything. Uh, and then I'm going to make my team great at what they do. And um, so that's how I look at it. Like, there's nothing – there's nothing out there. Like, uh, music. I've always been in, interested in music. I've always wanted to learn to play guitar or, or, or write music. So, you know, maybe five years down the line, I'll pick up a guitar again because I tried when I was 12 and I just didn't have the patience then. And I was an artist and I was, you know, I didn't have the confidence or anything. But I think just as a creative person, you always need to, you have a desire to always be doing, making, creating. It's just, it doesn't, if, if you don't, I don't think you're an artist. I, I just don't think it's a question. I think it's just, that's just who you are. Yeah, I see that time and time again, uh, the artists that I've encountered and the multiple different things that I've been involved with. And I'm, I'm totally going to use this as a soundbite uh, for my students because you touched on something and what it means to be a director, because uh, in our class, uh, I teach a humanities class and they, uh, to learn theater, I was like, what better way to learn about it than to do it. And I had a couple of students that came forward and like, I want to be a director. I I can't wait to tell everybody what to do. (laughs) And I go, well, that's not what directing is. And they're like, well, what do you mean? You got to tell them what to do. No, no, no. What happens if you go over and say, you need to do this. What if somebody did that to you? They go, Oh, I'm going to be like, no, I ain't doing that. And exactly because (laughs) it's all about facilitating. It's like, well, what do you do well? And then once they have that role, they, you've had that push and pull. And luckily with the film, everybody kind of comes to you with their skills. And then, like you said, you're just merely facilitating it. So a good director is going to let them do their strengths because if you're trying to micromanage uh, something at the size of a film, you're going to fail. Oh, yeah, it's too big of a job. It's yeah, it's way too big of a job. And I, as an independent filmmaker, I have to do a lot of the jobs myself. Yeah. And I, I just pray for the day where I can afford a, a whole team of geniuses to right. work with me instead of having to take care of all of it. Uh, Imagine being then, the, the Russo brothers who are working on the Avengers movies. And it's, you know, like people are like, well, how did they do that by themselves? You know, you're like, well, they didn't. Did you not notice the 22 minutes of credits at the end of the movie? It's like 10,000 people in that movie. Like it's crazy. I mean, they have to take care of every one of those. They have to answer questions for every one of those departments. That is is true. Which is the, the, the real thing. Like the directors, there are so, there's so much to think about and there's so much decisions and you have to have the answers and you have to know like that. And you now have to know how to, fix things and change things. Everyone's turning to you. But at the same time, everyone's looking to you because they believe in you. 
That's and right. You, and you're their coach and you're the, you're the leader and you have to take that position and you yeah. have to be able to, again, deal with all of it, but also at the same time, appreciate them, respect them and they'll, they'll build bridges for you. I mean, it's just how it is. Um, even when you so, hear that directors are difficult, like directors like notoriously Stanley Kubrick was a real, uh, I mean, I want to say dictator on the on the set, but that's because he was so adamant about what he wanted. Uh, you also hear the same things about James Cameron. Uh, but people go in, even though they might say, well, he was he was very difficult to work with, but they still enjoyed the experience because it made them better. Uh, when yeah. you're looking at James Cameron, say what you will, but the man changes the way that films are made for 10 years. And that's his goal every time he makes a movie. Avatar went to the forefront of visual effects. Uh, and Kubrick was doing the same thing. You know, nobody thought to do something that he did with the miniatures and the different sets that he built for 2001. And just he changed the way that people were doing films at the time. Yeah. And people trusted him. Have you seen uh, Have you seen that documentary film worker yet? No, I have not. Check that out. I can't remember the guy's name, but he was in um, he was in Barry Lyndon. He's an actor, and he was just so taken by Kubrick's vision and his precision and his genius that he left acting just to become Stanley's assistant. Holy and he and he lived and worked with Stanley all the way up till I think his death cataloging everything doing everything and he basically was kubrick's right-hand man he basically retired from acting just because he believed that this man was someone he needed to dedicate his life to helping and, and making the art that stanley was making because to him that was his calling and this guy knows more about stanley and his work and his films than anyone uh it's a great documentary it's called film worker huh uh and like i said this guy is a guy who just gave up everything again because you know art like you said artists a lot of it is about i mean we get perceived as self-indulgent and self you know important which we are because art is it's our thing it's like we're, we're creating this it's it's almost like you're uh, uh um it's a baby it's something that's yours and it it, it can be very single uh especially I start out as an artist and whatever. So nobody else, I was, wasn't working with anybody. I was, everything was on me. Um, but for someone to say, I'm not going to be the famous actor I've been working my life to be or movie star, whatever his goals were, I'm going to become Stanley's helper and I'll never get the credit or I'll never really, and he didn't, he didn't, he was like, I don't, you know, he's never getting the spotlight for it, for all the shit he went through to, to be Stanley's biggest helper. And, you know, um, so, you know, that sacrifice there is a tremendous sacrifice that guy made as an artist to just kind of devote his life really to another artist and that person's vision. Um, can't imagine it. <laughs> no, as you're saying it, I'm like kind of dumbfounded. Like, I. I that's amazing. Like there's some people that I really adore. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit before, um, before we started the podcast up, we talked about people that we've met, uh, and you having the opportunity to meet like, you know, hundreds of people that you've idolized growing up. And <laughs> I've idolized people. Uh, I met Doug Bradley, who I have tattooed on my forearm, uh, in the form of pinhead. And he was one of the only celebrities 
you know, like I mentioned, I was in a band, I, I've been on stage and I've done a lot of stuff and never been starstruck. Met John Carpenter, was not starstruck. Me and my mom went up, just shot the shit with him. He was so cool. But for whatever reason, Hellraiser was just always one of those movies that spoke to me as a kid. Uh, and he scared the shit out of me. So yeah. maybe maybe it was hard for me to separate him from the character he played. Um, but I, I, I acted like a little schoolgirl. He was, I was like, oh my God, you're, t- you know who you are, right? And he's like, yeah, I'm Doug. And, and of course he's British and he has this accent and everything. Um, but yeah, I, I can't imagine taking that, that ide- idealizing of someone else or having that idol and just follow them around like that. Um, that's, yeah, that's a whole nother level, man. I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's total commitment to, uh, to, but again, you don't know. I mean, if you really are in the presence of a genius like Stanley was, uh, you know, who knows? You may say, well, you know, I'm never going to do anything as good as this man's going to do. So I might as well just sit around and, and soak it in. And really, I mean, after working with him for 30 years, you probably could make a great film. <laughs> you probably yeah. really could. And uh, like, I, I, I wish... I, I, cause me, that's another thing. I want to learn every day. I want to learn something, especially as a filmmaker. I want to learn something. So, uh, you know, for the last two or three years, cause I've made six films and a lot of them, there's still a lot of things I don't know. And so for the last two or three years, I've just been consuming everything I can reading every book, uh, watching every video masterclass, these things like, and it's, it's one of those things where you have those, aha moments where you're really like, Oh wow. I didn't. Cause there's so many things that go into making a film, uh, that you, that the, the audience has no clue about, uh, and will never know about, but it's there. And it was thought about, and it was, you know, I just bought like, uh, last year I got, um, Francis Ford Coppola's diary when he, uh, adapted the Godfather to screenplay. And it's like his Bible. It's like, it's, it's the whole, it's his book that he, when he wrote it, all his notes, all his things. And it's just, it's like the work of a madman. It's like, you know, Kevin Spacey in seven. It's like this tome <laughs> of just madness. And it's like, but it, there was a, he knew what he was doing. He was such an artist and it, it shows on the film. Godfather will always be the Godfather because of the genius of Coppola and the amount of work that he put into that, uh, bringing that to the screen. Um, so that, that's, that that yearning to be better every day to get better every day and be patient about it like that's yeah. the other thing about uh, artists i think they want it now some people just want it now you know yeah. some people like will see my stuff and they'll go well oh how can i be as good as your your stuff is i'm like well i've been doing it for 44 years <laughs> you know it's not yeah. i can't give you a, a magic fairy dust and you're gonna do it you just gotta you gotta draw every day you gotta work every day you gotta learn every day and you gotta you gotta, you gotta find contentment every in the, day in the process. Yeah. yeah, you gotta enjoy every step. That's one thing I, I've seen a lot of other artists I know who burnt out was they wanted that finish line. That's all they saw, and they didn't take time to respect or appreciate every step. Where, hey, I went out for this play and I didn't get the part I wanted. It sucks. I'm like, yeah, but you're in the play and those people aren't. You got a chance to go out on stage every day and do that. That's cool. I mean, maybe yeah. you didn't get the lead, but you still are doing it. And you have to be appreciative. It's like, okay, 
did I try? Did I do something today? Did I use my time while I was here? Did I learn anything? If you did, then you should be content with it and never take any of it for granted. Realize that most of it isn't going to last, especially as film or art or music or whatever. Most people get 10 years and then you're done. Like one of my favorite thing, I met Barbara Steele at Horror Hound Weekend and the guy in front of me, I couldn't believe he said it to her. Um, Devil's Rejects, I think, was really big at the time. So, you know, Sid Haig and Bill Moza had these huge lines. And Barbara's still sitting there, and it was just me and him talking to her. And he says, does it bother you that, you know, for those who are watching me and I know, Barbara still was like a big, you know, actress, Italian, or actress in the 60s. She did Eight and a Half and Roger Corman, uh, Pit in the Pendulum, uh, Black, Black Sunday. Um, but, you know, she, her time had come. Her, her pat had passed. She was, you know, older woman. No one knew who she was. So he said, does it bother you that they have these long lines and you don't have a line? And I said, Dan, that's rude, you know? Yeah. But she, but she just said, oh, honey, that's just life. And, it, I mean, she just it didn't bother at all. She said, that that's true. Like, it comes, it goes. And you have to be prepared for it and understand it because a lot of people get ruined by once you do make it to a, a time where, like, maybe this is your time. You don't enjoy it, you don't respect it, and then it's gone, and then you're just fighting to get it back. And so when I was getting to where, like, when I worked for Screen Factory and people, all of a sudden, everybody wanted my autograph, my photo, and people are ringing my phone, everybody's wanting to hire me, and it's feeling good, and things are happening, and then I, I get to that point moment where I go, Nate, this might be it, so enjoy it. And I always think uh, Neil Gaiman says something like that. He said that when he was real big with uh, Sandman, he was doing all the comics. Stephen King came up to him at a show and said, you're doing really good. You should enjoy it. And he goes, I didn't take his advice. I didn't enjoy it. And uh, so to me, the whole lesson is be content with everything. Appreciate it. Don't expect it to be there forever. But when it's there, go with it. Be thankful. Mm -hmm. And then just keep doing, you know, it, it, the audience may come and go, but it's not about, it's really not about that. It's about just you waking up every day, having something to do. Um, to me, that's what gets me up. It's like, I have something every single day. I have 10 or four, you know, 10, 20 things. Like someone asked, what do you, what do you do if you have a writer block or, or artist block? It's like, I just go edit a film or I, I start writing or I, I, I go paint something else. Or there's always like be just, full like there's so many things that you could be doing read a book you know whatever it is like there's so many things there's so many things in life to experience yeah and if uh, you're encountering that block uh, with your art life is art so if you're out living uh you know i found that the majority of the time that i was struggling on writing a song or uh struggling on writing a paper for college or something like that i would go out and like you said do something else and then all of a sudden it would click to me and then I would go back and revisit that thing. It's, it's this, it's probably a, a fault of the movies <laughs> that we see these, these tortured writers who, you know, lock themselves away in a cabin for the summer because they say, I'm going to write the next great novel alone in solitude. I'm going to sit at this and painstakingly get away at it. And you're like, no, that's not how the fuck things work, man. Like sometimes mm. it, you, you really got to let it go. And then revisit it. 
you know, sometimes you, you talk to certain people and that's not everybody. Stephen King busts out a novel in three months. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, but he's also been doing it for 50 years. Yeah. It's just um, second nature to him. He just, yeah. all right, this is it. It's, a, it's an autopilot after a while. And it does like my art became my kind of autopilot for a while where I'm just like, I don't want to do this anymore. And thankfully this quarantine, I've gotten to where, I've been able to draw what I want, paint what I want because I was making my movie and I had to put it on hold. So I didn't have any art gigs like lined up because I had put everything on hold for the film. So I just started doing stuff for myself. Now I'm starting start to get more work, uh, paid work. But for you know, a couple of weeks, I was just painting for me again, drawing for me again. It was really cool. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, you were talking about, um, you know, I, I lost my train of thought here because you're talking about the um, just go do things. I had something. I had an antidote. It <laughs> I lost it. It happens. Yeah, well, but you, it, had, you had also talked about I, I had a little stick on something that you had said because a lot of times people uh, are finish line chasing, um, yeah. for lack of a better phrase. Uh, and I've had people tell me this, like uh, Black Belt Jiu-Jitsu tells me uh, I was training and I was a um, lonely white belt and I was like really focused on getting that first promotion. And he says, stop worrying about it. It'll You'll get it when you get it. It's because what you're doing right now is you're not enjoying what's happening right now. On the mat every day, appreciate that you're getting better. Your acting teachers will tell you that, you know, I'm like, well, I'm really worried about opening night when, how that's going to go. He's like, well, you can't worry about opening night. That's two months away. Worry yeah. about now work on you now, enjoy this and stop finish line chasing. You know, yeah, so, it's, it's all about all what people are thinking about you or saying about you or where everybody's expecting of you. It's like, no, 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 no. Just there's your, you're going that way. That's where we're going. Just go that way. Like that was the thing I was thinking of was one of the best lessons that artists will learn right away is that no one gives a shit about what you're doing. Yeah. Because again, you think, Oh, I'm going to write my great novel. I'm going to go write. I'm going to, it's like, no, 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 you're not, <laughs> you're not going to the likelihood of you doing it. Like Sidney Lumet said, there's no magic like formula to making a great film or classic film. It just happens. And the John ones you think that are going to be great aren't. And the ones you don't, I mean, I always joke about like the, the, I call it the cherry pie because like Warren's known for the song cherry pie and they hate it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and they wrote it in a second, like just yeah. a filler for the album. And that became their biggest thing they're known for. So it's like, you don't know what's going to, what's going to happen. And that's another thing also when, uh, when they talk about, I hate cherry pie, I hate playing that song. Well, that song may mean something to somebody. So when you shit on it, yeah. Uh, Josh Brolin talked about that. He said people would come up to him who uh, loved uh, thrashing <laughs> the skateboard movie. He made. Uh, yeah. He was young and kid. And he said, you know, I was awful in that. I was terrible. And so when someone come up and say, man, I love thrashing. And I watched that when I was a kid, blah, blah, blah. He would down. He'd be like, oh man, I sucked in that movie or that movie. He goes, I learned not to do that because I don't know. This kid could have saw thrashing, picked up a skateboard, and it changed his life. Maybe his dad beat him. Maybe he was a drug addict, whatever, and he found a new life, and it meant something to him. And it's not – he goes, how dare I take that away from that kid or that guy? Goes, so I don't do that anymore. I don't talk down about the things that maybe I'm embarrassed about in my past but meant something to somebody else. Um, so, I, yeah, there's so many lessons to learn as, a, as an artist, but I, I think that's the thing is, like, not everybody's waiting on you. 
No one else is paying attention to you. You just have to do it for yourself. And someone, you do it long enough, someone is going to enjoy it. And that's really, and it's not about how many people enjoy it. It It's about the connection. I mean, a, a thousand people liking what you do is great. You don't need, you know, all 7 billion people on the earth. And then again, we got 7 billion people on earth. So, you know, hundred people don't like you. Well, there's a whole lot more people out there who could, you know, might. Yeah. And it's very much a niche thing. And, uh, unfortunately these, these magical things that are wonderful that we carry in our pocket, uh, are a lot of, a lot of people are, you know, deciding their self-worth based upon likes on Instagram and likes on Mm -hmm. Facebook. And, and we live in this instant gratification culture and it, it all comes back to several of the things that we've been talking about. Nobody wants to work on the process because it's like, I need it now. I can have it now on that. I can be happy looking at these thousand pictures as I'm scrolling through and I don't even stop to take it in. And I find myself doing that. I find myself skimming articles just because I'm like, Oh, this is too long. You know, and I used to, I read the Lord of the Rings series as a, as a hobby is something I enjoyed to do. And, um, you know, it's, it's so strange that we're being co- becoming conditioned to those things. And, you know, you're now, yourself, now, now. <laughs> yeah. And your self-worth is not how many people like what you're doing. And like you said, there, there will be no audience. You know, there was a time that I was reading lines in a room by myself because I wanted to, you know, the, the audience came later. There was a time that we were playing metal songs in a basement before we were selling out places like Headliners and Expo five. You know, yeah. and you got to start somewhere. There was a time that Michael Jordan was shooting free throws in his fucking driveway. Exactly. And losing and, be- yeah. <laughs> yeah. and losing to his brother. You know, that's just how it is. Like you said, you, you know, talking about the music, it made me think of um, Stephen Van Zant was on, um, I think, Mark Marin's show. And he talked about how as a musician, here he goes, everybody wants to be a, a big music star now. He goes, but you have to suck. You have to play the songs and suck and you have to play live. You can't just go to the studio. You need to play live. So you need how to know how an audience reacts to you. You need to hear what songs work. And then you got to understand, you do covers because you start out covers because you play with good songs and then you find out why they're good, mm-hmm. how the audience reacts to that, that riff or that melody or that part of the song or that lyric. And then you start learning and then you have to learn how to record and you have to learn. He goes, so you, it's just the process of getting better, but it takes time. It takes years and you have to allow yourself to suck at it and you have to allow yourself to fail at it because it's all failure over and over and over. But that's when you find that awakening, Oh, this is what that paint does when I do this, or that's what that, that's how that looks when I do this with that pencil or, or that's when I hit that chord, that's what happens. Or I, mess with the amp or I kick a hole in the amp, you know, or whatever it yeah. is that they discover something, you know, when like in, in the stuff that really mattered was the stuff where people were, were finding things like when the Beatles were finding things or when Dylan was finding, you know, whatever it was like, it, it just, that's the, the fun part, but at the same time, it's not about, you just, you can't focus on everybody else. And I think a lot of people let it, let the world, and especially like you said today, we're so connected to the whole world because, I mean, you talk to artists from 40 years ago, they're like, yeah, we had no idea who was watching or listening or how they reacted or how much love we had or hate we had or we didn't know anything. So it was all in your imagination. Your imagination can make 
again, it hits you into depression or inflate your ego or whatever it does. But um, focus on the craft is it to me. Focus on what it is that you love. Get better at it. Everything else will come. And when it does, let it, but don't let it change you. And it's easy to get changed. Because they, they, somebody said, people always tell you how to deal with failure, but they don't know how to teach you how to deal with success. And that's why you see people like the Britney Spears and the Justin uh, Beavers and people like that, because they were too young or they didn't have, they didn't know how to handle it. I don't know how these kids, 20 years old, can handle what, Being what worth happens half a to billion them. dollars. <laughs> yeah, like how do you how do you deal with that? Like how do you you don't even know how to deal with like adult life yet yeah. or anything? And you're like barely you're, you're human. Being, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you've not, you've not lived anything, and you get those kids who who know. I <laughs> one kid tell me about you know finding uh, like again sellout thing. And he was throwing around the sell out. I'm like, how old are you? He's 19. I'm like, you don't know anything yet. Or, I'm sorry, but you haven't. Look, I've worked my ass off my whole life. I, I, I sucked longer than I've been successful. I was in my 30s when I got published for the first time. This didn't happen overnight, you know. Uh, so, again, people always see the finish line. They don't see the years and years and years of dragging your feet and, uh, setbacks and you know all the depression <laughs> and yeah. self-doubt and self-doubt's always there no matter how good you are that's true and i think the, the greatest handling of someone uh declaring someone a sellout is probably tool's song hooker with a penis if you're if you're, <laughs> if you're not if you're not familiar i mean because maynard is straight up i mean he's he's very in your face brash personality but he handled it really well in that song he says if if uh, I sold out before you ever knew who we were, you know, and it's like, even mm -hmm. if you were that first fan at that show, you don't know how many times we changed a song to get to the sound that we got. You don't yeah. know the sacrifice that each member of this band had to come to because trying to get five people to agree on something. <laughs> if you think it's hard to get somebody to agree on a pizza at your party, try writing music or making a movie. So it's like, <laughs> there was so much self-sacrifice that ever that happened way before you ever even saw that product. So yeah. it's like, if I'm the man and you're the man, he's the man as well. So you should point that finger straight up your ass. <laughs> Maynard killed it, dude. I mean, you, you, you can't say it any better than that. And nope. because who cares, who cares, you know, your opinion is your opinion and just let it go. Like I, I give, I, I, I like to bust balls about stuff, but at the end of the day, doesn't matter what my opinion is. You know, if I, it used to be the inside joke that, uh, you know how I know you're gay, you like Coldplay. Well, guess what? <laughs> now I love Coldplay. <laughs> like, as a metal kid in my early 20s, I thought it was cute. Now I'm like, yeah, they actually have really good music. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, I mean, that's the, I, I never, I've never subscribed to that. Well, I'm a metal guy. Well, mm. I'm, a, I'm a horror guy. Like, there's so much great art. Like, and, and to me, if you're a musician and you're not listening to, you know, Mozart and you're not listening to Dylan and you're not listening to Woody Guthrie or Buddy Rich or Robert Johnson or whatever, I mean, you're, you're just cheating yourself. Like you need to learn from all of them because these are people who've 
who've beaten it, who've learned, discovered it, and who've done it. And there's so much to learn from a romantic comedy if you're a filmmaker. There's there's so much to learn from a. And again, like just because it's not my thing doesn't mean it's not good. Like, look, Twilight made millions and millions and billions of dollars. Who am I to say it wasn't good? You know? Yeah, like it's not it's not me. It's not my. It's not for me. But it made a whole lot of people happy. I'll give you shit um, for liking it because, in my opinion, <laughs> vampires don't sparkle. But that's fine. You like what you like. Like at the end of the day, I'm just giving you shit. Like, yeah, you know. And so many people take things personal and want to get upset. Just like what you like. Who cares? Own it. You know. And don't be afraid of what other people think. And I think at the end of the day, that that's something we all need to kind of step out of ourselves and realize. You know. And because at the end of the day, the only person that really matters to you is you. Realistically. Yeah, and just be, and just because you don't like it doesn't mean the person's talentless. I, I see. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, what was it? Mariah Carey when she sang a while back? Yeah, of course, Mariah Carey is a wreck right now, but you know she doesn't have the voice. But like, someone was calling her untalented. I'm like, are you shitting me? Yeah. One of the greatest singers of her era of, of all time. 100. Just because you don't like her music doesn't mean she has no talent. Right. <laughs> and like. Justin Bieber, so untalented. I'm like, are you shitting me? Like that? Have you watched him? He's he, got talent. He can like, dance. He, he can sing. He can play multiple instruments. So, so don't. Calm down. Yeah, don't throw the talentless shit around because they've got more talent than most people. Right. And and just because you don't, you know, like that brand of music or, or film or or story or whatever, it doesn't mean. I mean it, I mean, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're making sandwiches or something? What are you doing? Like, this kid's 12 and he's doing that? You know, so I don't know. I, I just think um, I criticism to me, like you said, you're busting a friend's balls. I get it. But to me, criticism, I think it's become a uh, – when criticism's to make, to rise you above what you're criticizing, I think that's the problem we see now is – Criticism, constructive criticism is the only criticism to me that I appreciate. Like um, if your criticism is to help improve that person's work and especially if they've asked you for it, Mm -hmm. uh, if you see, if you're, if you're trying to help and it's not about being mean or, or to break them down or put yourself above what you see a lot of. But to me, criticism is key because if I turn in a piece of artwork, I mean, that's the thing when you work on a professional level, that's coming because you're working with professionals who know what the hell they're doing and you can't be hurt by it, but they're doing it because they want the best. They want the product to be as good. So like you said, you're in a band. We all want it to be the best it can be. So fuck your ego. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to rewrite this song or we're going to work on this or we're going to write, or we're going to change that scene or that scene isn't working. That line sucks. Like when I worked, uh, I worked with my buddy David Bennell, who's a cinematographer. I needed to replace my cinematographer because he got another job. So I asked the actors who had more experience because actors have way more experience than directors because actors work all the time on different projects. Whereas you're a director, you're like, that's your project for a year or two or three. Um, so I said, you all have worked with a lot more cinematographers and more, you know, who do you suggest? And they tell me, well, this guy, he's good. He's going to do whatever you tell him to do. I was like, this guy, he's going to, he's great. He's going to tell you your shot sucks. or he's going to fight with you. Like, that's the guy I want. I want mm-hmm. a guy who's going to challenge me because if he's fighting with me, it means he believes what he's saying. Like he, he wants it to be better. He wants it to be good. 
my name's going to be on that thing. I want it. I want to be part of that decision. And that's how I look at it. Like if my name's going to be on it. I want it to be as good as I possibly can make it. And as good as you can make it. Let's yeah. get it there. A film Let's, is probably not a good space for indifference because it, you have to know exactly what you want or it's just going to be a complete shit show. Yeah, that's why you get people, well, they left a project for creative differences because they just couldn't see that. There's no hard feelings. It's just that you saw it that way. I saw it this way and we can't meet in the middle. We'll find somebody who will uh, not be a yes man. Yeah. Because you don't want a yes man. You don't want people just telling, kissing your ass, but find the people who um, you work with and communicate with and have the same goals and the same um but at the same time, when I turn in a piece of work and someone says, hey, does this looks kind of weird? Well, yeah, you're right. That second set of eyes. And, hey, read the script. What's wrong with this? There's something wrong with this. You know, or what? You need that input. And it's good to have those people that you trust. Another quote I've been loving is uh, Morgan Freeman. It goes back to the criticism as well. Morgan Freeman said, um, never take criticism from someone you wouldn't go to for advice. Uh, and as a, that's, that's, that's sums it up. Like, I don't know these people on YouTube. I don't know these people <laughs> on Facebook. Like they don't know me. Uh, but I'm going to turn to this guy whose work I respect or somebody I've worked with for years, whose opinion I respect. And I'm going to ask their opinion. And if they give me a, a, a if they tell me it sucks, I'm not going to be offended because I know they have my best interest in mind. And they're just trying to help me. Uh, whereas a stranger, they're just trying to make themselves look good or feel good uh, most of the time. Because um, there's very few people out there, especially in the arts, who are willing to uh, put somebody else up because <laughs> everybody's out for themselves. Which yeah. to me, I always like, look, if you do good work, it's going to come. Like, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how good somebody else is or how bad somebody else is. If you're good, somebody will notice. Yeah, I think Joe Rogan's touched on that a little bit. He talks about um, the the comedy community, whereas in the 80s and things of that nature when he was coming up, you know, he talked about a feast or famine attitude. You know, everybody felt like there was only a finite amount of jobs and everybody's trying to get a sitcom thing or whatever. And now there there's so many mediums for creativity and there's so many people. I mean, you have 7 billion people, as you mentioned before. Who gives a shit if a bunch of these people don't like it if you can find your group and, you know, and thrive in that, in that area and that medium, then who cares? Podcasts being what they are, you know, and it's just so many different variations of this very, uh, this platform, just find your niche, man. Just figure out what the thing is that you want to do and, and run with that rather than worrying about beating everybody else down. You don't need to do that. Uh, and matter of fact, like if you're nice to people and get you a lot of places, uh, you know, my interactions with you were relatively uh, few, but they were good. I felt like they were positive. And then when I reached out to you, I was like, Hey man, would you like to do this? And you were like, sure. You know, and I was cool about it and you can get a long way. I've uh, started this a week and I've got 15 people on in a week and <laughs> they get it. That'll get you far. I'm not trying to beat people down. You know, I want to lift everybody up, support people. Yeah. I, I had a friend that talked about that too, as a, as an artist and an actor, he said, support your friends. Even if you don't give a shit about the play they're in, go. 
because they would hopefully do the same thing for you. Lift people up. Don't beat them down. Yeah. I don't know how, like I, I feel always guilty for not being able to because of my schedule. I yeah. like, I would love to go to every show, every play, every film, every premiere. Mm-hmm. And I, I hate it that I can't, but again, you, you know, when you're family man, you have two or three jobs because basically I do. <laughs> and you know, if you're making films, it's just almost impossible. But when, to me, when I see something good, I want to encourage it and I want to share it. I want to show people. So if I tell you something is good, I mean it. I stand behind it and I say, Hey, this person's great. You need to invest in them. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. There, there's just, there's a lot of people. Yeah. And Louisville has a really bad problem with clicks uh, in the film community. And I noticed that from day one and I just, I, I just got to where I like, I don't understand this. Like if I make a good movie and you make a good movie, it doesn't matter that we're both in the same area code, you know, <laughs> like right. it's like this whole thing where there's like, um, I think they call it the 300 radius rule or like, if you're, if you're within 300 miles, it's like, oh, you think you're better than me? <laughs> kind of attitude. You yeah. Know? Um, so it is, it's sometimes it's hard to get it, uh, to support, but, um, I don't know. I, I, again, I think it's, you don't have to win over everybody. You're not going to. And uh, it's the people who do stick around, who do show up every time. Like, that's why I feel like it just fills my heart so much when someone, if I'm doing a film, they're there. And uh, people who are super, super talented, like people I admire who are like, you know, hey, yeah, I want to do it. I want to work on it. Yeah, whatever. Let me know. Oh, well, I don't know if I can afford it. Well, I don't care. You know, pay me whatever you can. Like I, I, I've done a few projects like that where I'm like, if you got a penny, pay me. I just want to work with you. I want to work on that project because I'm going to learn something and I'm going to be proud of what we do because I know it's going to be of worth. It's going to be worth my time. Uh, and we're going to create something nice. Like there's something that people are going to connect with and it's going to be something I'll be proud to have my name on. And to uh, just the experience alone of, uh, I mean, I don't get invited enough sometimes on film. Like I just like, I just want to come be a fly on the wall sometimes and and watch how other people are working. Cause I know I can learn something to pick something up or meet someone who is a person, you know, someone who could also become a collaborator who, man, that guy's, I mean, I've been on sets where I've seen someone busting their ass. I'm like, I want to know this guy. I want to know who, I want to know who she is. She's she's phenomenal, and she's got a great attitude. To me, great attitude trumps everything. Yeah. Uh, if you're a total asshole, I don't want to work with you. If you got a huge ego, I don't want to work with you. But if you are good at what you do, and you're just happy to be involved and be there, and you're putting everything into it, and uh, I want to know you, I want to surround myself with those people, because behavior does matter on, on, on a collaborative thing. I mean, if you got people who just don't vibe, it's going to be hell. You're just going to hurt the project product. Yeah. Especially a filmmaker. You got to, you got to be free. You can't be worried about if the person's going to blow up or cause drama or, or whatever. You just got to say, we got it. It's not worth it. There's other people who will be far more happy to be there than them. Yeah. And be more involved. And that's the thing. It's like, again, going back to the, you know, appreciate that you're there. Be happy. Cause like, okay, there's, there's five actors who all auditioned. 
uh, and they're all pretty good. But this person, they really want it, and I could see it. And really nice. They're really pleasant. They're gonna they're gonna give me everything. <laughs> yeah. But that that's how it is. Like sometimes that's how you go. Like, well, this person's gonna be hell to work with us. Yeah. And not because not because they're not talented, but they're like there's they're just you could read it on people. Right. And like and you hear other people talk and like, yeah, I don't know. So it's always good and that just goes back to everything. Always would be appreciative, say thank you. I mean, I don't know how many people burn bridges where I don't get it. I don't like to write a publisher and they won't get the job and they'll just like treat them like shit or they'll, they'll like I had an actress who wanted to work with me a while back for years auditioned. Uh, she was kind of on the, we kind of debating between some other actors, but we took a break, came back and I said, you know what? Let's, let's give her a call. You know, I think she's, she's who we need. Well then find out, Oh, well she's unfriended us. Like she didn't get the part. So she unfriended us already, or they're talking shit online about it. Like, oh, well, they didn't give me a part, blah, blah, blah. Or they should get, or I expect. So it's like, well, you're never going to work with me now. Because, <laughs> like, I was about to give you the part. But, you know, again, you can't do that. Look, you didn't get the part. Thank you very much. Hopefully next time it'll work out. That's how you do it. You always be humble. You always be thankful. Because you don't know... It, it could change the next day. They could, they could need you the next day. And that's really what it's about. Creating that, the, the, that, the, that team of people that you know, that believe in you and you believe in them. You may not always, I mean, there's been actors who I've known for 10 years who finally we worked together and it was beautiful and it was yeah. great. And that's the hard part. I think about being a director is you can't always take all of them with you. Right that's the hardest part. Like, like, okay, so I'm going to this next project. You know, I don't have a part for you. There's right. no part that fits you. And I feel bad that I can't give you a part because I know how much you want to be a part of it. And sometimes they'll go, well, I just want to be on the set. I'll yeah. come and I'll, I'll, I'll work yeah. lighting or I'll do, I'll, I'll do better. So you can't buy that. That's loyalty. That's somebody who there's a bond, but there's some people like, well, screw you. You didn't give me a part. You know, so, and actors, you, you talked about how close and near and dear these things are to you. Like as an artist, this is this is as close to you as a child, man. I mean, this is something that you created. And as I think every actor should be a director and every director should be an actor so that you can understand this cycle because I understand that actors uh, have this need to please. Like actors have to have that that recognition that they're good by getting yeah. a part or whatever that might be, but they should also think from the director's viewpoint and understand that, Hey, they know what they need best. And a lot of times you'll get a part and you'll be like, well, I didn't want that damn part. I can't <laughs> believe I got that part. And yeah. then once you start doing it, you go, Oh, this makes complete sense because a good director is going to know what's going to be best for the story that they're trying to tell. And that's going to be whether it's on set or whether it's on stage, you know, from my experience, the director is nine times out of 10, right. Whether you want to admit it or not. And, yeah. and like you said, sometimes your friends just aren't right for those parts. And you know that because you, you know, you may have been probably had some part of talking with the writer and understanding it's your job to have a, a in-depth understanding of every aspect of that film. And as you do that, they have to understand, Hey man, he knew it was best for that movie, but 
people's egos. You got to check that shit at the door or yeah. you get upset a lot. Yeah, because it's and, that, and that's the thing about actors that I I I um I don't envy with them. I mean, it's hard for the director and the casting to to see so many good people, so many talented people, and then realize I can only have one of them. Or then you, the thing is, again, if you don't get that part, if we really like you, we're going to find something else for you. Mm-hmm. Or down the line, oh, you know who'd be great? That guy that came in for the last film, he was perfect. Yeah. But if he's burned the bridge, so, but at the same time with the actors, it's like, it's, it's such, it's such a, it has to be such a hard time to go through so many auditions to go through things and be judged, not only on your talent, but your look, your, whatever, your age, whatever it is that you're judged, you're judged so much as an actor. And we know that we know that when you come in, but I think both, both sides are kind of intimidated by each other or, assuming things about each other where i mean it's just as hard being on the on the on the judging panel as well as it sometimes is that way but at the same time we don't realize again how nervous they are getting up there to do what they do so we like making them comfortable is paramount like that's what you guys like okay let's just chill out and and but that that's the I do love working with actors. I, I, that's one of my favorite things is talking with actors. Um, I've done a little bit of acting, but I've never, you know, taken classes or anything. It's just more of an instinct thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I enjoy it, but I understand it. Like they are, they make or break a thing, but you know, you know, when you, when you see someone where they're going to kill it in this part, but sometimes you want them to show that they're not. So I'm always open to people come in and say, well, come in and show me. Go mm-hmm. and prove me that I'm wrong. Yeah. Because that's what I want. Because that's what really we look for. We want someone to prove us wrong. We want them to show us something that we didn't think about or expect. That's why, I, to me, with actors, I'm very open. Like, I have my idea. Like you said, a director to me is like, all right, we're on this train track, and I'm just going to make sure we don't go off the tracks. You go. I've told you everything. You've got my script. You've got my notes. We've talked. We've rehearsed. We've talked about this at length. I trust you. It's all about trust. Show me what you got. And if, if you do something, if, if, if it's, if it's not working, I'll say something, but if it's working, but at the same time, like you said, actors want confirmation. They want input. They want to be told that you're pleased. And that's the hard part that directors have is, knowing how to talk to an actor or remembering to say, even if it's every take go, Hey, it was a good job. It was a good job. I, I like what you did. And they, so that you know that they're paying attention to you and they and they are thinking about it. And sometimes directors were so focused on every other fucking aspect, especially independent where you're working on every aspect of it. Cause really on set, the director should only be talking to their, their, their actors and their DP. That's it. But when I independence, you're talking to everybody because you're doing so much. You don't have hundreds of people working. Uh, So I have to, so the director has this tug of war of I'm dealing with the image, the blocking, the framing, the lighting, the props, everything else. And I'm thinking about my time. (laughs) What time is it? How long do I have before we're going to run out of time? How do I combine these shots? What do I, I'm thinking about my editing. How's this going to cut together? I'm on the right side of the line. I'm doing all these wolves. And then you've got to think about the heart part, the system part, the, the acting part, 
and talk to those people. And yeah. Make sure that, so you get that problem where directors, you know, they have to be there for both sides of it, and it can be hard. Yeah. Uh, and that's the hard. That's one of the hardest things about being director is that you have so much to balance and think about, and then you're also looking at that clock the whole time as well. Well, you also eventually as an actor, you have to come to the realization that um, hopefully when they say nothing, when a director says nothing to you, that's the best thing they can ever say. Because if usually if you did something wrong, Oh, they going to tell you (laughs) they have, they have, (laughs) there's usually no, no uh, ease with that. mm, I did not like what you just did. Don't do that. Uh, whatever that was, just throw that away. <laughs> like usually they're not scared to tell you. So I've just taken it as a rule of thumb for myself and the few productions that I've done. Um, that if they're not telling me anything, if I, you know, when the directors send out notes, I'm going to send out notes tonight and I, I get an empty email. I'm like, whoo, I must yeah. have killed it tonight because he didn't have shit to say. So I'm Gucci. Yeah. I'm good. Uh, you know, so, exactly, because I got our, we're problem solving. So you're not a yeah. problem right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so, what our job is. <laughs> um, well, I think that a good way, uh, great conversation, man. Definitely. Uh, I think a beautiful way to bring these things to an end uh, is to leave with the real positive. Um, talking about inspirations and reasons that you got into it, whether it be a thing, an action that occurred in your life, you know. Um, something that you re- that was not going well in your life that you turned around, uh, maybe a, a director that you looked up to. So any of the things that inspired you, uh, we've kind of delved off of from the, uh, the initial horror, the horror. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is great, man. Cause you're really doing what I want to do and show that people are so multifaceted, even though they might get pigeonholed or stuck yeah. into one niche. So, yeah, we're not some... one dimensional. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No artist is one dimensional. You know? That's exactly such a beautiful demonstration of that too. But yeah. end us off with uh, some of the inspirations for you as to why you got into directing and art and all those different things. Um, well, I, I, I was lucky enough to come up in a time where you know I grew up in that Spielberg, George Lucas, Robert Zemeckis, John Hughes, Richard Donner era a film where things became really magical with Jaws and E.T. and Star Wars and Radiators Lost. So that stuff early on influenced me as a storyteller. I just love story. Uh, and then there's the great stuff of the kids, like the G.I. Joe and Transformers and He-Man, all that stuff. Just, there was so much creativity and so much story and adventure. And, and then, uh, you know, along came the horror thing, and that got me going. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street was the big influence on me. I saw those films. Uh, and then I uh, saw Batman. Tim Burns' Batman became a big comic book guy. I started mm. deciding I wanted to be a comic book artist. So uh, as far as inspirations, I mean, I think to me, artists are who they are by just like who people are. Like we are we are a combination of everybody we've ever met and loved and cared about or hung out with or talked to. Like we pick up mannerisms, we pick up sayings, we pick up dialogue, language, our accents, our behaviors from our parents, from our friends. I think artists are the same way. We absorb how this artist does that or how this artist does this, uh, how that writer writes that. Uh, I think to me, artists 
and that includes actors, directors, musicians, chefs, whatever it is, are just observers. Uh, we observe everything in detail. We listen, pay attention. We uh, we can dissect. We we pay attention to how people react. Um, they say that like artists are like the the historians. We kind of show people who they are or who we all are. Uh, comedians, all those people. Like we just usually pretty smart because we listen so much and we pay attention so much and take in so many things. So the the person that kind of brought it out of me was my first grade teacher. Um, Miss Johnson. Uh, she noticed it. She noticed the observation. She said, she, she explained it to my mom. Um, she said, if you tell a normal child to draw a house, he's going to draw a square, a triangle for a roof, a door, a window, a sun, a tree. So Nathan draws the bricks and the shutters and the gutters and the sidewalk and the grass and the bushes and all that stuff. So to me, that's what it comes down to. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a writer. I know how people talk and how people relate, uh, deal with the situation, how they deal with fear, how they deal with all these things. Um, I don't talk a lot. I'm really shy. I could talk on these podcasts, uh, but usually I'm very quiet in person. I don't talk. I'm not a conversationalist. Uh, and people would always say, you know, you talk too much, Nate, or they would make fun of me not talking or being quiet. And I was like, well, if, I just always say, well, if, if I was talking, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be paying attention enough. To, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to do what I do. Like if I was just talking, I wouldn't be paying attention and I wouldn't pick up, I wouldn't be able to draw or write or, or do these things because I'd just be blabbing on myself. And what I, what I bring to the table is just what I bring to the table, but I'm paying attention to what you're bringing to me. Uh, so I learn from everything. I learn from everybody. I learn from just watching people interact or, or uh, books uh, everything I can. Um, uh, but that teacher, she, she knows that she sat me down in front of the class uh, in, at her desk and she gave me three pieces of paper from a, uh, a coloring book and she had me trace one. I think it was like a drawing of a lamb in a coloring book to trace this. So I traced it. She had me trace it again. Okay. And I traced it again. <laughs> she had me do it three times and I'm sitting here as a six-year-old kid going, what the hell is this all about? You know, why is she making me, I don't want to do this again, you know. Then she says, all right, now draw it freehand. Like, just draw it by looking at it. And, you know, I drew it. And, you know, at the time, I didn't know what she was doing. But what I realized is, like, she's just repetition and teaching my brain and my hand how to, and my eye coordination, all that, to translate. If you've done something, it's like, if you're studying for a test, you write it. If you write it down, you're going to remember it easier. You keep writing it down and write it down. You're going to remember. Uh, and that's what it is with the arts. Like if I, if I've drawn that a lot, I know how to draw it from memory. I know how to, re I can recall it. Uh, if I, like an actor has to bring some emotion, they're going to recall something that they remembered or they're going to keep living in that moment or something. So, uh, I think that it goes back to that teacher knowing that, so thank God she noticed that someone who observes and see things in detail, that that's a, a, a talent, that there's something that needs to be explored or pushed. Uh, and I noticed that my daughter, my daughter's taken after me, and I started to notice, like, if I was drawing something, even when she was little, she's like, Daddy, that doesn't look right or something. It's like, oh, you see it, you know? Like, she sees it. And I could say, all right, you've got the eye. You've got it. You've got your paying attention. 
Um, but as far as filmmaking, um, I always loved film, but what really changed me was in college, um, I saw Reservoir Dogs and Days of Confused and Clerks all in the same summer or whatever, like 1994, my freshman year in college. And uh, it was one of those, it, that was a time of the independent filmmakers. You had Rodriguez and Tarantino and Smith and Spike Lee and all those guys came out. And I think they inspired a lot of people to realize that, because especially when you grow up in the middle of America, you don't think, you think that's an LA thing. You think it's a New York thing that there's no way you can make movies in Kentucky or you can do those things living in Kentucky or you need millions and millions of dollars, you know, and then you're looking at something like, you know, paranormal activity or like clerks made for like 27 grand or, you know, with his friends, but he had talent, you know, he had, he was a great writer yeah. and he had a great ear. For, the film isn't great, like filmmaking vert wise, but because his, he had a voice, he had a voice and that's what shone through clerks. And that's what made Kevin Smith who he is. Cause he, he'd be the first guy to tell you, I suck as a filmmaker, but he has a voice. He has his thing. He has these great characters and this great dialogue and this, this just something about him. And he just has the gift for gab. He could just talk about, he loves everything. He, he has so much passion. When you hear Kevin Smith talk, he just loves what he's talking about. He loves this. He oozes with him and that enthusiasm. Um, so those are the guys that I grew up in. And then the artists like Frazetta and Bernie Wrightson and Jim Lee and all those great, the, when I got into comics in the late eighties, that was the time of the artists, the Jim Lee's and the Todd McFarland's and the Mark Silvestri's were like the superstars, rock stars of, of comics. And they were so rock star that they quit their job and made their own company. You know, that's how much power they had, how much popularity they had with image comics. So those guys were inspirational. But then it took me years to learn that, because I remember when I got into it, you know, I was 13 years old, I'm looking at these flashy artists who were popular, and then I'd see, like, technicians, people who were really good at their crafts. It's kind of like the difference between, like, a character actor and a movie star, where you're looking at, like, Robert Duvall, you know, holy shit. Look what that guy's doing. All right, he's not Tom Cruise, but holy shit, like... You know, when you're seeing like a guy, a guy who can like uh, in, in music world, a session player who's played on all those albums. No one knows who he is. He's the best guitar player in the fucking world, you know, but nobody knows. Yeah. yeah. So it's like so when I started looking at those guys as a teenager, I'm like, I don't see it. I'm like, hey, they don't look as good as this guy's art. Or that. But then I realized as I got older and I started to become a, an artist, a comic artist that 90% of it is storytelling. It's knowing the craft and how, how to tell a sequential story and visuals. That's why that guy was in that position. That's why that guy was in demand. It wasn't because he was flashy. It's because he knew how to tell a story. It's because he knew how to do it. it, it, it he, it's an, uh, uh, there's a great book on writing screenplays called Invisible Ink, and I think that's a perfect title. It's the Invisible Ink. It's what the audience isn't seeing or doesn't even know that they're seeing, but it's a visual language, a visual thing that we all understand so when we see bad stuff we recognize it we don't know why but we know it but when we see really good stuff even if it's low budget it doesn't have the money but it's there there's something there there's a talent there there's something in that song there's something in that performance yeah movies movies good. like antichrist are really good with that I, I don't know if you saw that yeah yeah that's a great example there's so many little subtle things in the background and that was probably a hyper low budget film so 
Yeah, yeah I, get, I get exactly so, what you mean. Yeah, so that's what you look for, and that, and then that's what you strive for. It doesn't matter how much I have, where I live, who I know. Uh, if I just focus and I, I I keep pushing myself and learning, because I always like to again the whole race, the finish line. I used to always say I want to be a professional artist. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to go about it. I don't know how it happens. But if I stay with it, eventually someone's going to like it. Eventually it's going to come. So I'm not going to be in a hurry. I'm going to progress. I'm going to keep going. And it's going to happen. But you don't. It doesn't have to happen or I'm going to quit. I don't understand that. When I see artists say, oh, I'm not getting where I want. I think I'm going to quit. And again, I go back to them like, then you're not an artist, man, because there's no way I could quit this. I don't care if I didn't have any audience. I didn't have no one paid me again. No one knew who I was. I'd still be drawing. I'd still be writing. I'd still be doing something uh, because it's just, it's like breathing. It just is. I get up and that's what I have to do. I have to do this. I can't, I could never, and it's gotten even worse. And now that I have become professional, it's gotten even worse to the point where I can't relax it. I can't do, I can't do nothing. I can't sleep. I can't do, I don't get any sleep anymore. I haven't gotten sleep for like 15 years, you know, and just cause as soon as I get up, I got to do something. And when I'm going to bed, I think about everything I got to do or I want to do. And then so you do it. So I think that's the difference between, I mean, anytime you ever hear anybody talk about the people who are most successful in the arts, it's always, they always say the same thing. It's the people who work the hardest. Yeah. It's people who just put more effort and just bust their ass. Yeah. <laughs> just do it. And that's what you got to do. And it goes back to the thing of everybody needs it now. Everybody needs instant gratification. Everybody needs it once it now. It's like, it doesn't happen. You no. have to bust your ass. You yeah. have to suck. <laughs> you have to wait. Yeah. You have to be patient. And you have to appreciate every damn step of it. Yeah, I think it's uh, David Goggins. It's either David Goggins or Jocko Wilnick that says embrace the suck. That very thing. Because, you know, they use it for, you know, getting up and working out. And, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, people want in their lives suck. Whether it be that beautiful physique or that career that you wanted, uh, you know, you, you got to go get it. And, yeah, dude, I think that's a beautiful sentiment. I think that's a great way to send us out. Um, I appreciate your time, man. Uh, I would love for you to share anything that you got going on projects that I know Corona getting has kind of derailed a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. but, uh, if there's anything that you're, you know, I know you said that one of your films is on hiatus, but maybe you'd like to talk about that. Any of your art that you got going on, anything that you'd like to share on this medium for get you a little bit of free publicity. That's always beautiful. Okay. Um, uh, well, yeah, the film I was making was called, uh, on a dark and bloody ground. It's a, a film I've been working on started writing the script in 2015, but it's based on stuff I wrote way back in like the eighties and nineties, um, just reworked, um, very much a tribute to Kentucky, uh, and kind of the horror of the kind of stories, like the campfire stories, that kind of thing that's kind of missing where the kind of Stephen King stuff, uh, Stephen King always kind of remind me of Americana campfire story, you know, it's not slasher, it's not gore, it's not any of that stuff. It's there's like a universal thing to Stephen King's work. Small town USA uh, type it's of stories, relationships. 
Yeah. All his stories are driven by that. Beautiful. So stuff like Pet Cemetery and, uh, um, you know, it and all that kind of played into it. Um, but then also the, the, the modern contemporary Western stuff. I like a story. Sam Peckinpah was a big influence on it. Cause I just love like the wild bunch and, and stuff like, um, it's very much a tribute to my grandfather, my dad and, and just fatherhood. And it deals with a lot of fears of, I was really, um, you know, people ask you, you know, if you're in horror, like what, what movie scares you or what scares you? And, you know, I say, you know, it changes as you, as you age. As a kid, I was afraid of the dark and the boogeyman and all that stuff. And now I'm afraid of death and loss and leaving my kid or something happened to my children or, or something like that. So I'm going to make a movie about generational fear. And like, so I have characters who are young and they're afraid of the dark and the boogeyman. And I have adults who are afraid of losing their child or, or, or dying or, or whatnot. So the film is not really hundred percent horror. It's, it's definitely about um, fatherhood and the, the fear that you're not going to be there for your children in, in, in the moment when they need you. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we shot about 35% of it. And then the whole thing had coronavirus happened. And I, I wrote my crew cast and I said, look, uh, everyone's health is far more important to me than this film. It's just a movie. Uh, we shut down really quick it, before everybody else was like, I just, no, we're not going to, we're not risking it. It's not worth it. Um, I hope it gets finished because we, we did have some kids in the movie and I hopefully they don't hit puberty while we're off. <laughs> uh, cause there's some of them were at that age. Um, but, uh, uh, as soon as you know we're hopefully out of the you know in the clear, I'll um, I'll pick that back up and finish it. Um, and then as far as art, I've been doing a lot of my own stuff on Facebook. I've been doing like a lot of live videos because I uh, I'll go and paint live on Facebook on my page. Uh, I started doing I hadn't done it ever before, and I started doing it during this quarantine and. I would turn everything off. I just had the windows open in the kitchen. I'd paint at the kitchen table. My wife's up in the studio uh, working from home. So I would just have kind of a quiet moment and I'd have my cell phone on and people would watch. And I had people telling me that it was real calming. It was really like, <laughs> they were making Bob Ross comments, you know, like they were saying <laughs> it, was, it was really a nice peaceful hour for them in their day of all this chaos going on. So I continued to do it. Um, and they can find that just by searching Nathan Thomas Milner on yeah, Facebook. Okay. On Facebook. Uh, and then I'm doing some stuff for Fright Rags. I do a lot of t-shirts for Fright Rags. Um, doing a new one for them. Right now I'm working on three things. Uh, one of them I just got this week. I can't talk about. That's another problem. Like when you do the commercial work, you can't talk about everything. But uh, And a few movie posters that I'm doing for some films. Again, I can't mention, but... Um, uh, well, I'm doing this, uh, I got this podcast that I started doing for fun. Uh, I was a guest a couple times and this really liked the guys and they just, they liked having me and they, Hey, you're welcome to come back next week. It's called the, the site's called the horse and to get on Facebook and the show's called discourse. 
It's uh, four other guys, horror fans, but we all get along really well. And one one of the cool things is one of them's like 20 years younger than me. So we get this because there's so much generational thing about how horror films affect different people and generations. So I love that dynamic of I, we get this younger kids for space 20, but you know, I'm 40, I'll be 44 uh, next Sunday. So there's a big difference. I think he's 24, maybe not 20, but there's a big 20 year gap. But it's so funny too, because I'm so open-minded that like we have a lot of the same likes because he likes a lot of modern horror, which a lot of people my age don't like modern horror. <laughs> so we connect on some things where the other guys don't. Um, but uh, it's called the horror syndicate. And I've been, I've actually started writing reviews and stuff for their site too. They have a website, uh, horror syndicate.com, which I'd never done. People have been wanting me to do reviews for years because I kind of do them anyway on Facebook. I'll say, Hey, I like this or whatever. But uh, so I've started, I've reviewed a few independent films and uh, things and, so I, 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 it kind of, again, another quarantine thing. I had free time. It's, I get to talk to them for like two hours a week, you know, on a live show. And we talk about things we love and horror. Um, so that's something I've been doing. So that's something I could promote as well. Um, I think we do it every Tuesday and Thursday night live on Facebook. And Perfect. like, we'll have a topic, like we, you know, we'll talk about, Hellraiser for an episode, or we'll talk about Phantasm, or we'll talk about what film defines this decade and that decade, and that and 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 uh, you know, really really fun conversations. And we we're live, so people are communicating and sending comments, and we respond and we get them involved. And um, so yeah, and uh, you know, good luck with this one. I mean, I thought it was a cool idea when you asked me about it. I thought yeah, because it, it's true. Like people assume well, that's how those people are and that's how these people are and that's what they're into and that's what defines them. And it's like, no one's one dimensional. Like everybody, it, yeah, it's, it's kind of like when Danny McBride was writing the Halloween movie, people were like, well, well the funny guy, it's like, <laughs> yeah, dude, he grew up with Halloween too. You know, he's my age, you know, like he, exactly. he, he obviously watched the same movies we all watched. And then if you dig deeper, you're like, well, he went to film school to be a screenwriter. <laughs> yeah. And the stuff he wrote were fantasy and horror scripts. That's what he wanted to do. But he's just a fucking funny guy. And he met all these other filmmakers who were comedians or uh, comedy filmmakers. And they cast them in their movies because he's funny. Right. But that doesn't define who he is. And so I think a lot of people like to put the labels on things and uh, say, well, you, you can't do that. You're, you're a funny guy or you can't. Like I just saw that there's a new horror film coming out where Kevin James is like the psychopathic home invasion yeah. guy or something like what yeah but like i'm interested to see that because i mean he may shock you he may yeah. really shock you uh jim almost gaffigan. A- jim gaffigan <laughs> just did one jim gaffigan was uh oh yeah uh it's a it's like a kidnap movie he's a basically like an uber driver uh ends up in a situation where he's taken he basically becomes this on-call uber driver for this drug dealer and then he needs to get mm-hmm. out of this weird situation and kidnaps the guy's kid uh, wow. And it just looks dark and gritty. And you're looking at Jim Gaffigan, uh, who's a comedian. Uh, the name of the movie escapes me, but look it up. Uh, and then Nick Offerman just did the series on FX. Oh, yeah, the uh, Alex Garland show. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. But- when you get done with this podcast, go <laughs> sit down in front of the TV. It's probably <laughs> the greatest thing to happen to sci-fi in a, a very long time. Uh, absolutely beautifully shot. Absolutely really cool, creative, unique idea. Uh, absolutely loved it. 
But man, it seems like we could talk for another four hours. So yeah, that's what um, happens with horror fans. <laughs> so, but man, I really, really appreciate uh, you taking the time out to come by and do this, uh, especially something like this that's in its infancy. You didn't really know what to expect, uh, but hopefully, this format worked for you, and hopefully, it picks up some steam, and we get a few listeners, and I, you know. Uh, gives me enough support to pay for the yeah. streaming. <laughs> you know, listen, and you know, again, something we said might mean the world to somebody or push them in the right direction or the direction they've been looking for. I mean, that's that's the things like put good things out there. Hopefully, it helps somebody. If it helps one person, then that's that's the coolest thing about the internet to me is that. As a kid, I didn't have anything like that. I didn't have a place to go to learn how to do this. I go on YouTube and I'm watching like my heroes draw. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And I'm like, God, I would have killed for that in 1988. You know, like, no kidding. I had no chance. So now, I mean, I could reach out and write to him and say, yeah. "Hey, man, you meant the world to me." And, and you know, and uh, go to a convention and meet somebody. Like I went to a convention and met Jim Steranko, and he gave me like a 30 minute art lesson. And storytelling, I'm like, I can't believe this. Like, I never yeah. really thought I met this guy, but I'm getting a lesson from him. So there's definitely a lot of cool opportunities in the world today mm-hmm. uh, with the technology and, and uh, the things that are happening. Um, so, yeah, I think even if you get <laughs> 100 views on this, yeah. uh, one person in that 100 may find a calling or direction or, or the motivation or the, the, the pep talk they needed to, um, I mean, I, I was just this quiet, awkward kid drawing in my hiding, you know, not wanting anybody to see what I could do. And now I got fans all over the world that people know people have my work on their walls. I, and again, I don't know all of it. Like I, there's artists who have started companies because of something I made or, or things like, you know, so you never know how the reach is going to go, but it was worth it to somebody. It was worth it that, that I tried and that somebody else tries. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, brother. I, I mean that it means the world to me that people take the time out to talk to me. Thanks, man. Hey, no problem. Thank you. Ladies and gents, thank you again for checking out the, what the niche podcast with me, your host, Andrew Morris. Please be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you fulfill your podcast needs. Uh, As of right now, the show is available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, and soon will be on CastBox as well. And based upon many of the things that we discussed in the show, I thought I would leave you with one last thing to consider via a quote from the godfather of horror himself, Stephen King. Life isn't a support system for art. It's the other way around.